This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Mostly What God Does, Reflections on Seeking and Finding His Love Everywhere. Written and narrated by number one New York Times bestselling author and broadcast journalist Savannah Guthrie. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum, and this week I am thrilled to share my conversation with Greg Kokel. Greg is the founder of Stand to Reason, and he has debated atheist Michael Shermer and Deepak Chopra. He is an award-winning writer and best-selling author, and today we talk about discussing our Christian convictions, which he details in his book, Tactics, a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions. I don't know about you. But I have walked away from many conversations wishing I would have shared what I believed, wishing I would have answered a question differently, or asking a question about a comment someone had made to me. Can you relate to that? Is your experience similar to my experience? Well, if so, you are in for a treat today. Greg's book, Tactics, has and continues to help me engage in spiritual conversations, encouraging others to think differently about Jesus and the hope he provides. So as we begin this conversation, I would like to invite you to visit graceenoughpodcast.com slash tactics for links to Greg's books, quotes from today's conversation, and other episodes that will help you share Christ with others. Good afternoon, Greg, and welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. Amber, what a treat to talk with you today. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we have had quite the conversation before ever pushing record. And I think sometimes my listeners are like, quit doing that. Push record yeah. as soon as you get on the <laughs> well, phone. We's buds now, That's you know, right. and there were a lot of good things that important things that we talked about, about the culture. But uh, anyway, glad to follow your lead now with whatever you want to do. Absolutely. Well, I always love to introduce those listening to my guests by actually allowing them to just tell everybody a little bit about what you do mm-hmm. and your family. Okay. I'll give you my family first. Um, I'm married and I have two children, 16 years old and 13 years old. Now people can't see me, but when I tell that to an audience, <laughs> I know what the audience is thinking. That's weird because you're an old guy. Yeah, I'm 71. And they ask, they're wondering, how did that happen? And I just tell them, I don't remember. But in any event, <laughs> I'm doing the <laughs> best awesome. I can. I need prayer. That's what I know. But so I have two teenagers and uh, and I've been married. I didn't get married till I was almost 48 years old. So uh, I had my 48th birthday on my, my, uh, my honeymoon, as it turned out. Wow. But I live in Southern California. And I have been involved with an organization called Stand to Reason for 28 years. Um, I have been involved from the beginning since I started it, and that's why I could make myself president. But we actually (laughs) have uh, 19 employees or 18 employees now. Uh, We have five content providers, speakers, writers, and stuff that full-time do what I do, and that is to travel and speak and to do. I have my own radio show for 30 years now, and now it's also kind of turned into a podcast. That's the format, but I still am on radio. And what our goal is, Amber, is is to, um, well, our, our mission, simply put, is to train Christians to <laughs> think more carefully about their convictions and to be able to defend those convictions, classical Christianity and classical mm-hmm. Christian values in the public square. So we want to help people to make a difference in the world, okay? But our goal is not to be evangelistic to the world. Our goal is to train the body of Christ to do that. So really... I mean, to put it simply, we're concerned about discipleship. This is what we're doing, Mm -hmm. discipleship mentoring. That's the beat of my heart. And so um, what we are trying to accomplish broadly is to create a certain type of person, and we call that person an ambassador, all right? Mm -hmm. And an ambassador, if you think about it, has three categories of skills. They got to know something, (laughs) any ambassador, all right? But it would certainly apply to Christian ambassadors. You got to know something. There's a content base. You have to be able to engage in a productive way. So there's a Mm -hmm. wisdom element 
a tactical element that probably we'll talk about. And then the third is a character element, you know? And I mean, if you're nasty, even if you're clever in the other ways, you're not going to get the job done. Mm -hmm. So the way we characterize that as stand to reason is knowledge is an accurately informed mind. Mm -hmm. Wisdom is an artful method and character is an attractive manner. And mm -hmm. so that kind of captures why we do what we do, no matter where we're doing it. Yeah. We're trying to make the biggest difference in the body of Christ to help build attractive ambassadors for Christ who can make mm -hmm. a difference in the world for the truth. Well, and it's interesting that you say a few of the things that you said. One is just the ambassador. I was reading something this morning and how it says, you know, an ambassador is someone who represents someone else. And so when you think about those three elements and then that we truly are, I mean, we're commanded to represent Christ. And so we need those three pieces. And then also my son is going into sixth grade and my kids are classically uh, in a classical Christian school. Mm -hmm. And um, sixth grade is one of those when they're starting to shift into that logic. Right. And so Ms. Heinrich said, you know, this is when we're getting them into that gray area where they're learning to think about yeah. what they're thinking about. Right. Oh, that's such a great way to put it. And that's good that you have classical school who uh, focuses it on that at this stage in their life. Yes. Because this is something that is not taught in public schools. I wasn't schools. taught it. No. Well, if, if it was taught well in public schools, they wouldn't believe a lot of other things that public schools are teaching them, you know. By the way, you said uh, we, we are... Um, uh, oh, commanded to be ambassadors. Actually, in Second Corinthians chapter um, five, where Paul talks about being an ambassador, he says we are ambassadors. That's right. You're right. And when you think about it, if people, it, for good or for ill, if we are unpleasant people, it isn't like we, oh, we're not being ambassadors. We're being ambassadors, That's right. but giving a wrong message. You're right. You know, kind of thing. So one hundred percent. Well, before we do jump into tactics, which is a book that. Um, I love, and I know that people in my life have said, yeah, it's required reading for our students. Like, and one of my friends, Janelle has said, everybody I know that, you know, I've had on my show about any type of apologetics or just talking about your convictions, talk about, you need to read the book tactics. That's, oh, that's you know, sweet. that's the, the book. Um, yeah. But before we do that, I'd love to know how my guests have come to know Jesus. How, when did you begin walking with him? What were those early years like for you? Well, I was raised uh, in, a, in a Roman Catholic household, all right, and then I was born in 1950, so that means I got out of high school in 68, which is like the, 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 the right and dead center of the, the entire counterculture revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, I like to think of it like that's when we were sowing to the wind so that we are we reaping the whirlwind we're experiencing now. Mm -hmm. But a lot of things that are accepted now as just standard were, were new things then and attractive to a person who had now abandoned a lot of things in the culture that were uh, appealing to a, a young man of 18 years old who did not want to think about God and purity and religion and self-restraint and all of that. Yes. And so I embraced the world aggressively. And um, my younger brother had become, all the, all of us left our religious roots um, uh, as we grew up. And then when uh, my younger brother became a, a, a Christian, a real Christian during the Jesus movement, um, he began to talk to me about that. Long story short, by 1973, and we were both living in Southern California at the time, having been raised uh, in Chicago area, um, that's when it began to sink in for me. And I can't, it wasn't apologetics that made the difference. It was just the, the sovereign work of God and the Holy Spirit. And I was mm -hmm. more and more convinced this is this is the real deal. Yeah. And so in 1973, in September, that's when I uh, put my trust in Christ. I began following him and I've been following ever since, close to 48 years now. So it's been a wild ride. It has not been yeah. easy. And I wanna make this clear, Christianity, the real deal. Yeah. Following Jesus is not easy. It's Amen. hard for us individually because our lives are overturned by him because he's going to make us into something better than we've ever been. And that's hard. And also we are set 
of necessity, of uh, by very nature, in opposition to all of the ideas of the world that's going in a completely opposite direction. And so this is the reality of being a Christian, yeah. is that we are outsiders and we are opposition. We're not making ourselves opposition. They are making us the opposition mm. because of the nature of the message that we communicate. But we are to be faithful to that and to Christ. And, and so that's been my life for 48 years. Wow. That's such a good way to think about opposition mm -hmm. um, because I feel like we're feeling that more and more and more. And maybe mm -hmm. that's not true. Maybe that's just my lived experience. Oh, no, it's true. That it feels, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, it's, it's, it's quantifiable. It's so obvious. And mm -hmm. ever since 9-11, which is close to 20 years ago, and I'm reeling realizing um, you have a memory of it, but you know, anybody that's 25 or under has no conscious memory of 9-11, which is a stunner to me because it yeah, feels- Because my daughter way, like, the other day said, what's 9-11, mom? Yeah, it feels like yesterday in, in some ways. Um, but uh, the that is when um, being a committed Christian was not just false to outsiders, but it was dangerous to outsiders. Mm -hmm. That's when we began, began to be viewed as a threat to our culture. Now, that's a mm -hmm. whole crazy thing. How could that be when it was yeah. Islamic terrorists, fundamentalists, who were responsible for that conflagration in those three locations in New York and in D.C. and then in that field in Pennsylvania where the yeah. flight went down, Flight 91. But nevertheless, that's how it happened. And there's a whole explanation I have for that. But the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that we are largely personas non grata in the cultural scene with the elites. Mm -hmm. We're the dangerous ones that need yeah. to be opposed. And mm -hmm. this is one reason that there's a flight from Christianity by a lot of young people who, quite frankly, care more about what their friends think about them than what Jesus thinks about them. It's so true. Oh, my goodness. I could go on and on about that. Mm -hmm. But we are going to get into talking <laughs> yes, about really what I hear so often and what I, my experience, which is I really want to share what I believe with people, but I don't want to come across as somebody who's either hateful, judgmental, um, kooky, whatever. Yeah. And that mm -hmm. is really the question that tactics digs into. How do we do that? Yes. How do we actually present the truth in a winsome way? Um, mm -hmm. In a way where you, you talked about earlier, that character. Mm -hmm. And so will you share a little bit about what your journey was like in writing this book and what really led you mm -hmm. um, to write it for people like sure. me? Um, I get asked that question a lot, and sometimes people think that an author sits down and starts thinking, well, what should I write about? Oh, I have an idea, and then you start inventing these things that you think might be clever ways to engage, in my case, uh, with my topic. And uh, that isn't the way it works right. for most writers, or certainly not for me. These are things we've been thinking about and formulating for a long time, especially with a nonfiction book, you know, where you're, you're trying to put ideas together. And so that's the way a tactics in a certain sense, evolved over years. Now, the book is almost 13 years old. Yep. The one that's available now is the 10th anniversary edition, which is much improved, 35% more material, and that's yep. the one you'll get if you go to Amazon or Stand a Reason and grab that book. Uh, keep in mind that the subtitle is A Game Plan for Discussing your Christian convictions. So there is a method that I offer here that is meant to Accomplish the task that you just described, Amber. Allow Christians to get involved in productive conversations that look more like diplomacy than D-Day, mm -hmm. <laughs> to put it simply. And so as the way it was formulated, over time, since I was engaging a lot, I've spoken on more than 80 college and university campuses around the country and, and uh, quite a number of them overseas. And so in being on live talk, interactive radio, people can call in and take exception with my views and challenge them and everything. For over 30 years, right. I, I have, of necessity, worked on developing my manner of engagement so that it would be more productive. And that means the technique and also my attitude. You know, where it mm -hmm. says that we are to defend the faith in First uh, First Peter chapter 3, it says, you know, always be ready to make a defense, to give an answer for the hope within you, blah, blah, blah. But, this is where people kind of stop, but keep going with gentleness and reverence. Mm. Yeah. Paul tells, tells Timothy at the end of his life, last letter, 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Lord's bondservant is not to be quarrelsome, but patient when 
wrong. Okay, so we're not to be getting in fights. This is the ideal. This is what we shoot for. But a lot of folks who are who are aggressive like me, this is we got to watch <laughs> against that. All right. So um, over time, then I began developing ways to engage. And then as I thought about them, I and this is part of my nature, you know, I like organizing things. And I think, well, wait a minute, this is a little technique that I, I identify as such. And then I can uh, maybe I can pass it on to other people. And here's mm-hmm. some other things I do. So, for example, I realize that there are some objections to Christianity that are based on false information, like religion is the most has caused more wars and bloodshed than any other any other thing. Well, this is just false. And yeah. so I realized that a simple appeal to the facts is all that's necessary to deal with the objection. So there's a technique that I call now as a tactic, just the facts, ma'am. Yeah. You know? Well, and, and I want you real quick to say, because in more simple terms, when you say all you have to do is appeal to someone to state the facts. You're basically saying, look at them and say, how so? Like, yeah. how is it? Is Christianity really the one who, like, have we really done the most bloodshed sure. in the world? Yeah, like, right. is that even true? Yes, right. Now, so there's there are techniques on how to maneuver in that, and that I'll, that's the game plan, which I'll talk about in a moment. But I was just using that as one example mm-hmm. in the history of the development of my ideas, where I saw this is a problem, so I gave it a name, and I refined it so it's transferable, all yeah. right? And there's a whole bunch of tactics like that. We got mm-hmm. a suicide tactic for self-refuting arguments. Like people say, there is no truth. Really? Is that true? end of discussion, right? Uh, or we have, uh, uh, you know, taking the roof off or um, a road scholar or steamroller, which is a defensive tactic or uh, what a friend we have in Jesus or inside out. Uh, these are all different moving towards the objection. These are all maneuvers in conversation. But I found that there is a core concept that guides the whole process mm-hmm. and that is the most effective way to employ any of these things. And in fact, you just role played it a little bit because you're familiar with it. So mm-hmm. let me just be more precise and draw attention to what you just did. Uh, we have a the goal of the tactical game plan is to stay in the driver's seat. And so you can guide the, the conversation in the direction you think is more profitable. How do you do that? If, if you're talking a lot, well, that just annoys people. Okay, <laughs> right. That's not the way to do it. You don't overpower them with your conversation. There's another way to do it. And the way to do it is by asking questions. So there is a character that's a famous TV icon that was well known for this. He was a detective that a lot of young people are not familiar with, but I don't care because if I tell them about it, then I role play it on the stage and they can see it. I got the jacket and the whole deal and the phony cigar and whatever. And his name was Columbo, Lieutenant Columbo, who always kind of scratched his head and he played dumb a lot, came in under the radar, didn't seem scary, mellow yellow kind of deal. I should have given a 60s alert for that comment. In any event, (laughs) he uses questions. And so what our game plan is, is to Mm -hmm. use questions in a very specific kind of way to be able to manage the conversation, to stay in the driver's seat, and then to move forward. But in a way where there is tremendous amount of safety for the Christian. The way I describe it is you're getting into the shallow end of the pool. You're ankle deep, all right? Mm. And uh, the at least the first two steps of the game plan, um, I have model questions that you can ask, okay? And that is to give each listener that you have on your show, Amber, uh, the basic thing they need to begin. And by the way, I hope they all buy the book, all right? Yeah. Because there's so much there. Not just because I'm an author, but because I know it'll help them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Absolutely. And that's my project. You know, I'm not going to get rich as a Christian author anyway, you know. <laughs> so, uh, but the, but I, I wrote this to help people. All right. Um, but even just listening to this podcast, the two steps that I'll define of the three step plan, even, we, even if you don't, we won't really get to the three step, third step, except for to maybe describe it briefly. But just using the first two steps is going to allow you to make a difference. Mm -hmm. Even though you're not advancing your own view, you're asking questions about the other person's view. 
and I know people have a hard time believing this. Yeah, right. I'm going to ask questions about their view, and that's going to help me advance my view. I'm just saying, I know what the Holy Spirit has done through me using this years and years and years and years and years all over the place, and what other people have told me that God mm -hmm. has done, even if they just stick with the first two steps, which employ asking questions. Well, and I think um, about a conversation that I had with Rebecca Pippert. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Rebecca Pippert, but she's written um, Stay Salt and Out of the Salt Shaker. Oh, yeah. And so when I talked right. to her. I actually was at an event where she spoke too, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World, right? Yes. That's the, yes. A couple months ago. And I just, you know, something that really struck me because she says so much of like, yes, ask questions. And then when she talks about the way that Jesus brought people in and really changed their views was almost always through asking questions, right? questions about them, questions about what they were actually doing there and things mm -hmm. like that. And it really helped me think like, pay attention to those questions mm -hmm. that he's asking. Mm -hmm. And then I read your book and I was like, okay, I'm yeah. seeing how this is effective. So if you start kind of paying attention to that way. Jesus did that all the time there were like 100 286 questions that he asked that you find in the gospel something like i have it's it's in the book it's quantified there but the but you're right and what this does is um it puts you in a position not only to gain information that you need for further conversation so you get a clear picture of the other person's point of view different mm -hmm. aspects of it but you can actually use questions to make a point okay mm -hmm. uh even though it's a question you know, Jesus, the, the, the lawyer says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what does the law say? Okay. And so he gives the two great commandments. He said, okay, I've, I've go this. ahead and do that. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. So, and, 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 and then Jesus, he says, but who's my neighbor? And that's when the Good Samaritan parable comes in, which many people take as a, a, a moral parable, a moral behavior. It's not. It's meant to show to the, the guy who was seeking to justify himself, is what the text says, that he's not going to be able to love his neighbor in the way that he thinks he does. Because Jesus said, your neighbor is your worst enemy. Okay? Um, so, put that in your pipe and smoke it. But right. notice... <laughs> Notice how he ended the parable with saying, which one loved his neighbor, the Jew or the Samaritan? I mean, the, the other Jews that walked by or the Samaritan right. that helped the injured person. And so there he's driving his point home. So you're right. These, these can be very powerful. They're very consistent with the style that Jesus had. And if you know the pattern that I suggest in the book, the plan itself, it makes it very easy to execute without any effort and with no risk to yourself mm. because when you ask questions you are not making statements and if you're not making statements you have nothing to defend yeah but that doesn't mean you're not making an impact well so because you talk so much about the colombo tactic and that really is the whole first portion of the book right Will you share with us a little bit about kind of how you go about this colombo tactic but just so the listener kind of understands how to work this out. Sure. Okay. Uh, there's a predicate, though, to using the game plan. And I want to mention that here because what I want to discourage people from doing is going into a, an occasion to use the game plan with the kind of mentality about evangelism that we have all inherited. And the mentality that we've inherited is a harvest mentality. In other words, we're going to share Christ and see if we can get this person to pray. You're using mm -hmm. a little tract or a little system. Oh, those are fine. I'm not objecting to that. But notice how to the end. Here's the prayer. Pray the prayer. Get them to sign on the dotted line. There's yeah. a number of problems with that or liabilities. It's useful in certain circumstances. I prayed a prayer like that. I've used these things in the distant past. However, the culture has changed radically. Okay. Absolutely. But here is the key thing. When the fruit is ripe, it falls into the basket. All right. And notice that in the New Testament, you do not have altar calls. You do not have people being encouraged to pray to receive Christ. That is a new development, yep. mid 19th century and beyond. But this is what we've absorbed. We see something different that you can see Jesus talking about in principle in John chapter four, after the woman at the well, 
incident. And frankly, I just read it again last night to remind myself of this. Jesus makes a distinction between sowing and reaping, what I call gardening and harvesting. Mm -hmm. And the principle here is before there could be a harvest, you got to have gardening. Mm -hmm. Duh. Yeah. Before there could be a harvest, you have to have a season of gardening. And any of your listeners who became a Christian, you know, uh, they didn't grow up that way. But they became a Christian later in high school, in college, as an adult or whatever. They know, and yeah, that's what happened to me. There was a period of time where people sowed into my life, and slowly but surely, something began happening until the fruit was ripe, and bang, it dropped into the basket. When it's right, that happens. This is why there's no altar calls in the New Testament. There's gardening. So simply put here, I don't want people to worry about harvesting. Mm -hmm. I don't worry about harvesting. In fact, this is going to shock some people, but I have not prayed with somebody to receive Christ in over 30 years. Mm. Oh, what a loser. You know, I know what people are trying to think, and how could that be? Because um, the method that I've adopted has been so much, it was so magnificently productive. How do you know you're not leading anybody to Christ? Okay, I'll just give you one illustration. You heard of a guy named J. Warner Wallace? <laughs> Right, I have. I don't. He's, so he's back. He's a. He was a cold case. He is a cold case detective. Yeah. Who was an atheist, who took his tech detective methods, applied them to the gospels, realized that they were reliable, became a believer, then became an apologist, then became a best-selling author with Cold Case, and then God's Crime Scene, and then Forensic Faith, and now his newest book just came out, or yeah. next week, as I got it back behind me, I got an advanced copy called uh, A Person of Interest. Yeah. J. Warner Wallace was in my garden mm. before he was a Christian. Yeah. He was an atheist listening to my own radio show. Now, and I could give you names of other people that you might recognize that have told me the same thing. So somebody went into my garden and harvested my fruit. Get out of my garden. No, that's not my attitude. We are all on the same team. That's right. And and so we get to garden, 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 garden. And... If somebody else does the harvesting, who cares? The sower and the reaper rejoice together. That's what Jesus said in John Mm -hmm. chapter 4. So what I'm encouraging our listeners to do is adopt a mindset of not necessarily getting to the gospel and trying to get somebody to sign on the dotted line. We're not swinging for the fences here. Uh, What I'm trying to do, and this is the way I characterize it in the book, Amber, and you know this because you read it, is I'm trying to put a stone in their shoe. When I speak to a non-Christian audience, I tell them right up front, I'm not here to convert you. I just want to annoy you a little bit in a good way, is what I say. And they all chuckle because they expect the Christian will annoy them. Okay, I'm your guy. Uh, But I think you'll thank me because I want you hobbling out of here with something I've said sticking at you so you're thinking about Jesus. Yeah. Because I think Jesus is worth thinking about. And, And so that's my goal here. So if I get into a conversation with somebody and I can do some little bit, and that's all I'm able to do, it's a success for me. All right. I, you know, maybe I don't get lead them to Christ. Maybe I don't even get to the gospel because the circumstances I'm facing maybe don't lend themselves to doing that. Maybe instead of talking about the gospel, I'm talking about their view that's false, that I'm trying to get them to question as a preliminary to considering the gospel, as pre-evangelism, if you will. So that's the first step here. I'm, I'm just inviting people to change their perspective. Don't worry about the end game. Don't worry about them becoming Christians. Just worry about, try to think about doing something worthwhile to move them a little further forward. Do some gardening. I love that. Okay. So the first step of the game plan is very simple gather information. Lots of people we go to talk to, we want to get in a spiritual conversation, but where are we going to go? How do we start? We don't even know if they're Christians or not. Okay, so we need to get the lay of the land. We're not going to charge over the hill, so to speak, and, and you know, to use a military metaphor, where there are AR-15s blasting away to only to hit a battalion overwhelming us. I mean, that's dumb. So we're just going to play it cool. We're going to come in under the radar. We're going to be casual, and we're going to show a genuine interest in the other person. Mm -hmm. And we're going to use questions to draw them out and find out a little bit about them. And uh, if we can get in, if if this leads naturally to a spiritual topic, fine. If it doesn't, and we want to introduce it in some way, we can do that too. 
I mean, we might ask them just out of curiosity. And if you don't want to answer this, you don't need to. But I'm, I'm, I'm just curious. I ask a lot of people, what do you think happens when you die? What do you think? Okay, so there's an, there's an opener. You can, that's an easy way to get in to a spiritual conversation. Okay, now there's a question that I su suggest people use. And this is a model question. And there's all kinds of variations to this. And the question is, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? So I, I talk about in the book of me having a conversation with a, with a young lady who turned out to be a witch. And I asked her something about her jewelry, which was a, was an occultic symbol she was wearing on her neck. And I asked her, hey, does that uh, jewelry have religious significance for you? And off we went, because she started mm -hmm. telling me her views. Now, the minute she starts telling me her views, guess what? I have more opportunity to ask some form of the question, what do you mean by that? or that, or that. I don't woodenly use the phrase, that's my model question. And so mm -hmm. I can engage with her. And what am I doing? I'm showing interest in her and her beliefs. She's doing most of the talking. Mm -hmm. What do I have to defend? Nothing. I'm showing an interest, but I'm also getting information that will sub, sub, uh, maybe suggest to me directions I can go further in the conversation with more questions. Yeah. So this is the first step. It's just asking the question, what do you mean by that? And one last thing here before we get a second step. I know I'm hogging all the conversation. You're fine. Number, but, You're great. Um, but actually, this is a good example of what I'm talking about. You're running the show. It's going the way you want it to go. But I'm doing all the heavy lifting here, Amber. How do you do that? Because you're the one who's doing what? Asking Ask, the question. Of course. See how this works. All right. That's right. So um, now I'm thinking, what was the point I was going to make? The uh, uh, we want to we want to show an interest in them, and especially if their point of view that they are raising it represents a kind of a challenge against our view. You know, they yeah. might make a claim against our view. Well, you can't rely on the Bible because it was written by Christians and they're biased or something like that, okay? Or the Bible's been changed, or Jesus never existed, or uh, science has proved there is no miracles, or these are all kinds of assertions people can make against Christianity. Uh, the impulse of the Christian is to think, I have an obligation to answer that. Mm -hmm. And if they're not able to, they're stonewalled, and that's the end of the conversation. And the objection stands in the mind of the nonbeliever because it hasn't been correct. answered. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, what we have done then is we have retreated from the field because we don't feel we can do any more. I understand that. I'm not blaming yeah. anybody for that. But that's I'm true. saying, what if instead we asked our model question, what do you mean by that? Well, God never existed, or God, there is no God, or in anything that even seems completely obvious, always ask for more information. And I'll tell you what's going to happen. It's going to force a person to be more clear about their own point, and many times they're going to struggle. Mm -hmm. They're going to meander around because what ends up being the case is they are repeating things they've heard other people say that have been effective to Stonewall Christians, but they have never thought about it themselves. It's so, so when, true. So when the Bible, when somebody says the Bible has been changed, they, I say, what do you, what do you mean it's been changed? Oh, you know, it's been translated and retranslated so many times. Translated and retranslated so many times? Have you really? Have you studied? this yourself personally to know how the Bible was trans handed down. Now, I happen to know that's not the way it worked. He's wrong about that. And I can tell him he's wrong. It would but be it, accurate, not but effective. it would be very deft, you know, or shrewd. So really, tell me, how, where'd you study all this? What do you mean? Oh, I did. <laughs> study what? Well, study this, what you're talking about. Did you study, you know, ancient manuscripts, how they get handed down? Because this is what you're talking about, right? Now, what ends up happening is I ask more questions for them to clarify their own view. Lots of times the wind is going to go right out of their sails because mm -hmm. they know they don't have the substance. They don't, yeah. they, don't, they, they don't know what they're talking about. You don't have to tell them that. When you ask them more questions and they realize they don't know what they're talking about, then that begins to occur to them. Yeah. Now, what is that? That is a stone in their shoe. Mm-hmm.
Now they may not, they may po be poker face with you. They won't give on, but it is, this is what we're after. Okay. Point I'm making here is if your listeners have one step, one piece of the game plan, and all they're doing is being a student and gathering information about other people's views, and they get as much detail as possible about their views, it's going to work in their favor because mm -hmm. all they're doing is digging their hole deeper if their view is false. Well, and being someone who has been a deliverer of those questions and also on the receiving end, not a faith questions, but you know, when someone really holds you to the fire a little bit, mm -hmm. I mean, it is true. It makes you really think, do I really believe that? Like, do mm -hmm. I even know what I'm thinking about or talking right. about or do, cause my husband's family are those people that will just ask. And I remember when I first came into their family being so annoyed by that, mm. but it has helped me now to really think through things that not just about what I believe, but what I mm -hmm. say. Yeah. Right. You know, what's interesting about that is what you just described is these other folks, relatives mm -hmm. of yours, et cetera, using Columbo yes. number one on you. Now, nobody taught <laughs> them to do that. That's right. But every Christian knows this. We get asked questions all the, the time that are raised. Well, how could this be true of such and so and this and that? And you're a Christian, you believe in God. Well, what about this? And what about that? And what about the other thing? And many Christians are not capable of answering that. And that, watch this, that makes them question their own convictions. Mm -hmm. All right. That's called a stone in their shoe from the <laughs> other side. Yeah. And that's what we're looking to do in this mm. direction. You know, we want to put the stone in their shoe. We don't want to be the ones. And by the way, if people are just asking about other people's views, and then they come after and take a, we get aggressive and they say, what about you? You believe such and no. You can always say, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not interested in talking about my views right now. There is no reason you can't say that because the Christian is in charge of everything on his or her side of the conversation. Mm. You can just say, look, I'm really interested in your own views. That's it. And, and what, it, what it is you believe, basically. Now, mm. there is a second step you can go even further Another question that gives a different kind of information that's really important in the discussion, which also keeps you completely protected. Shall we go there? Sure. Okay. I would love to. I mean, I love, you're great because you just keep giving us content. This is fantastic. <laughs> I won't shut up. I tell I, us what my kids tell me. Uh, anyway, well, but they I've don't been... have the you're great part. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, oh, damn. They, you know. they, somebody has to keep us humble someone yeah, and it is typically right. wow. our children <laughs> yes that's the you, look our closest relationships are the sharpest surgical mm -hmm. tools that god yeah. uses to conform us to christ i mean Amen that's a truism that. all right it so is. the first step all we're doing is gathering information that's the general principle we're using the form of some form of the question what do you mean by that and the information is general information about them to be friendly and more particularly if we want to get into spiritual things questions about their spiritual views and especially if they are voicing their views against our position mm -hmm. we want to make sure that we have a very clear understanding of exactly the nature of the objection somebody says it's irrational to believe in god i got a, a master's degree in apologetics and in philosophy and I can say, here are four arguments from Thomas Aquinas. You know, it's knock down, drag out. I, it's all done. Here are the proofs for God. Yeah, I can do that. But I'm not going to. I'm going to ask a question. Really? It's irrational? What's irrational about believing in God? Now, notice, now I've tossed the ball back into their court. It's their job to make sense of their challenge. And it's mm -hmm. a question gathering more information. It's just another iteration of what do you mean by that what's what's mm -hmm. irrational yeah well it's dumb how is it dumb well it's stupid well you know <laughs> how is it what is stupid about it well it's stupid to believe in god why right no, notice they keep repeating themselves they do this mm -hmm. all the time because they have nothing else to say mm -hmm. and so when you are calm and patient with them and say i get it i'm just trying to figure out you know more okay yeah. this kind of leads to the second step the second step of the game plan, I call it reversing the burden of proof, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, the burden of proof is the responsibility that somebody has to give reasons for 
a controversial view. So if I say, Amber, you're wrong about something, okay, it's not your job to refute me and to prove you're right. Um, well, let me back up and put it different. Put it differently. If I said, Amber, there is no God, so there's a very concrete claim. You guys are Christians, you believe in God, but there is no God. Now what I have done is made a controversial claim. Mm-hmm. Now most Christians are thinking, well, all right, uh, where's that book that I read about the proofs for the existence of God? I, I never read Thomas Aquinas. Or, oh, now what? Notice how psychologically they feel it's their responsibility to disprove the other person's claim mm-hmm. when the rule about burden of proof is the ma- person who makes the claim bears the burden of proof. Mm-hmm. So it is not up to the Christian to disprove the other person's claim. It is up to the other person to give reasons why we should take their claim seriously. That's their job. Now, yeah. if instead we take it on our old shoulders, we have given them a free ride. We've made it real easy for them. Yeah. And here I will say 60s alert on this one. In the words of the immortal Ricky Ricardo, <laughs> they got a lot of explaining to do themselves, right? And so what we want to do is make them do the explaining. I know some yeah. people are saying, who's Ricky Ricardo? That's okay. Lucy's husband. All right. Uh, there you go. They got know, a lot, lot of, of people. A lot of people watch. I love Lucy. Well, maybe not remember. still, but yeah, I'm trying to. Yeah, I think so. But it, it, actually, Columbo was the number one icon uh, of TV and Lucy was number two. Yeah, and that was that was maybe 10 years ago. So maybe it's changed now. But in any event. So the point is, is that we're not going to just let people make claims that are extravagant and are controversial. Mm-hmm and let the claim stand thinking it's our job to refute them. No, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to ask some questions about the claim. Once we're clear on what they mean, that's the first step, we're going to ask another question. We're going to say, okay, I think I understand uh, why you say that. I mean, I understand what you mean when you say that. Help me out with another thing, though. How did you come to that conclusion? What are your reasons for thinking that what you just said is actually true? Now, that's the model question. How did you come to that conclusion? I just followed with a variation, and that's what we're after. We're looking for the reasons. So in the first step, we're looking for the view. In the second step, we're looking for the reasons for the view. Now, we're asking them to do what they always ask us to do, you know, defend our views. Yeah. At this point in the conversation, we haven't put our views on the table, so we've got nothing to defend. We're just interested in this other person's ideas. And when they keep coming at us with these challenges in the form of an assertion, this is so. The Bible's been changed. Jesus never existed. Okay. Uh, God is evil or, you know, yes, down the line. Then they've made the claim. And so I'm curious, why would you say that? What are your reasons? Well, what I find though, that so often when you're not like in an academic setting or with people who are wanting to engage um, in in what we can just refer to as debate Mm -hmm. nowadays, so often, and my friend Tina had said, ask him this question is you hear these comments like you do you and I'll do me. Right. You know, it's this very vague version of there is no truth, Mm -hmm. but very vague. I mean, just like what I said, Uh how do you really respond to those people? Oh, you do you and let me do me. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Okay. You do you. Let's go there. Very popular phrase. Okay. Totally narcissistic. All right. Utterly and completely narcissistic and impossible to live out. And here I'll show you. So when I say Okay, you let's just role play a little bit. Okay, so okay. you just said, okay, Mr. Kokel, you do you, I'll do me. Okay, tell me what that looks like, Amber. Now, that's a version of what do you mean by that? Tell me what that looks like. I do me, you do you. Tell me. Well, in a, in a situation where I may be speaking to someone who's also a mom or something like that, and let's say, let's do the transgender thing. I've had someone say, well, you do you. 
Okay. And I'll so, do me. No, Amber, get into character and just okay. be that person. Okay. So okay. Uh, Amber, tell me, you just told me that you do you, I'll be me. I don't know. I'm not entirely clear on that. Help me to understand what you're getting at. Well, you parent your kids and what you feel is best and let me parent mine. Oh, okay. So if I parent my kids to be racists, then you're okay with that. Is that right? No, I'm not. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Oh, now I'm confused because what you just told me to do is you do you. What if that were me or any of a host of other things? Are you willing to stand aside and not say anything and allow me to do my own thing according to what did you call it? My truth. I'm not even sure what that means, but let's just roll with it for the moment. My truth. You're going to stand aside. No complaints. No judgments. I love it. Is that right? Now, I'm still in character. What are you going to say? I don't know how to stay in character here because you're yeah. saying what I would normally say. I know, I know. Well, the, the thing is, this is the problem in a certain sense because you are, at this moment, even trying to be in character, you are speechless. That's right. And the it's, reason it's you're true. speechless is in, in 15 seconds, I asked a question that made it clear that your okay view that. was not livable. That's right. So uh, now, just so people know, what I've done now is Columbo number three. Mm -hmm. Columbo three is I'm using questions to make a point. Mm -hmm. I know that that way of thinking is not livable. Mm -hmm. They don't want you to you do you. They do not believe that. What they Particularly believe is- Particularly as a Christian. They definitely no, don't want that because everybody's complaining about it. Anybody to do that if it interferes with them being them, what they believe is me be me. I go by my truth. Mm -hmm. And if you go by your truth in a way that does not interfere with my so-called truth, okay, then I'm fine with you. But if you do something that interferes with my truth, yeah. then that rule doesn't apply to you anymore. You have to shut up, be quiet. We're gonna cancel you. We're gonna get rid of you. We're gonna ostracize you. We're gonna call you names because you won't let me be me. But of mm -hmm. course, they're not letting you be you. This is what I mean when I say this ethic is unlivable. Yeah. Well, and it is so important. What you did was basically when someone says that to you, you have to be willing to go ahead and push in and ask that question that is going to make them feel a bit uncomfortable and seems it's challenging. Yes. Um, and some people will not don't want to challenge, but it's like, well, that's what you have to do, though, because they're not people aren't even realizing that what they're saying is not livable. That's right. No, they're just no, trying to get you to be quiet. Right. I like the way you put it, too, but I just want to make a contrast. Yes, you're going to make them feel uncomfortable. You have a choice here. You can be feeling uncomfortable because you hold to the truth. Or you can make them feel uncomfortable mm. because they're holding to a lie. So what mm, is one good. or the other in this situation? So make your choice. You want to just sit there and be silent, not say anything so you can be uncomfortable and look like an idiot to them because you believe what's true? Or are you going mm. to ask a simple question that is not inflammatory? That's right. It's not nasty. It's not mean. I mean, even people can re-listen to this role play that I did yeah. with you. I wasn't being nasty. I was trying to be really nice to you, but I was asking a pointed question that was appropriate, given mm -hmm. my understanding of the suicidal nature of their view. That's another tactic, suicide. It turns out to be refuting and self-refuting in practice. And so <clears throat> I'm just asking a fair question in light of that. Now, any Christian who doesn't want to make the non-Christian feel uncomfortable is not willing to do what Jesus did. It doesn't mean you have to be, you don't want to make them feel uncomfortable because of the way, of the nasty way you're acting. Mm -hmm. You want them to feel uncomfortable with the falsehood they're believing. Mm. Now, they might lash out. They don't like yeah. this. Yeah. And so you're going to get a reaction, possibly. That's not been characteristically my experience at this point of, the, of, the, of a conversation, especially if you've been nice. What you end up getting is, okay, 60s alert again, Simon and Garfunkel response. Okay, those two guys who are still alive, but they're really old, uh, who wrote a song in 1966 called The Sounds of Silence. Mm -hmm. Great song. But what you get is The Sounds of Silence. In fact, that's what we got from you when you were attempting yeah. to continue the role play. Yes. I don't know what to say. It's You're so right. true. Well, you know what that is? When you get The Sounds of Silence, 
in at least potentially that's a stone in their shoe. Mm-hmm. All right. The brain now, is going. Yeah. Well, so something else that uh, it's interesting because before we were coming on, this has been a couple weeks ago. Uh, like I said, several of my friends are Christian podcasters. And I'd said, Hey, if you could sit down with Greg, what would you ask him? And of course, at first they're like, well, what about this? What about this? And I was like, no, I know what I want to ask him. I'm not really, I just want to know, like, what would your curiosity be? Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of my friends, Leanne Mancini had said, you, she was talking so much about what our culture is like when it comes to defining moral ethics now. Mm-hmm. And it really is just how we feel. What we feel to be true is what we say is true. And so how would you say parents can really help their children prepare to live in this world where moral ethics is just defined so mm-hmm. individually? That's right. Okay. And loosely. Well, there's a couple things that can be done. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll lead with this. Uh, there's a series that uh, about the life of Jesus that a lot of uh, good Christians have developed called The Chosen. You know about this? Yeah. Okay, I actually like it for the most part. When you know a lot about the Gospels, you see yes. all the things that are in the wrong order, or maybe they miss some points, and so you get crabby about little things. All right, but I heard something that really bothered me, mm-hmm. and I see it a lot. It was also a line that was in the um, the movie uh, God is Not Dead, part okay. two. Okay which my friend Jim Wallace, Jay Warner Wallace, was actually in, and uh, Maria Canals, who, <laughs> she was also an actress in that too. And I have known Maria for 35 years. So um, anyway, the line that I heard was in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus, the way it was characterized in this movie, which is a great scene and, and very well cast in both cases, I think. But I, I, then Nicodemus says, how will I know this is true, something that I've, and Jesus says, what does your heart tell you? This is right out of Star Wars. This is right out of uh, the Lord of the Rings. This is right out of the relativistic nonsense of the world. You follow your heart and you're going straight to hell. Now that's not my wording. That's the wording of a youth pastor that had it on his, uh, on a book. It says, follow your heart and go right to hell. This is the worst possible advice you could ever give to someone. And why do people think that we're so mean when you say that? I'm like, haven't you, do you not have lived experience that that is disastrous? Right. Sorry, that's a whole side conversation because yes, that drives but, me crazy too. But but you are, you, this. I'm starting here because your question had to do with how do parents protect people from their kids from the world? And, and one of the first things that they can teach them is your heart is deceitfully wicked mm-hmm. and who can know it? That's Jeremiah. Yeah. And, and that, that you can't follow your heart. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Listen, um, my daughter's, uh, th- she's 16. She's about to get her, her permit for driving. <laughs> okay, honey, how do you f- drive? She might say, Papa, I get, get some teaching. How do I drive well? I say, honey, follow your heart. Well, I got to put together this potion here, you know, this medication for you. What do you think? Honey, follow, what is your heart telling you? Well, I mean, in those kind of circumstances, people can see the absolute nonsense that, mm. uh, that this maintains. Be- what this means is that we have to get vital information secured from a different source. Now, I'm not saying you can't, in a sense, take take stock of your common sense moral intuitions because right and wrong, that's kind of built in. But pardon me, those can easily be uh, twisted and distorted because we got other competing interests. And what the culture is saying is you do you. As long as it doesn't hurt me doing me kind of thing so this is bad advice when it comes to these kind of things we have to know what reality is actually like that's what the story of reality is meant to help us to see that's why i tell people you got to be in your bibles even a little bit every day read through the whole thing don't just pick and choose and cherry pick your favorite verses start at the beginning and work yourself through to the end it might take you three or four years no worries just do it and when you get done start over and the reason for that is so true. you have to have God tell you what reality is like because there are other disciples out there that are telling you lies and they're mm-hmm. very persuasive. And one of the lies is follow your heart. Mm-hmm. And that is where I often will agree with something that Jen Wilkin has written a lot about, which is don't let your time with Christ 
only be composed of devotional reading either, Mm -hmm. because so often devotional reading is meant to pump you up, Mm -hmm. to tell you all the ways and all the things that you can do to quote unquote, follow your heart. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is not all that's not the full canon of scripture. That's not what God puts in his word. Right. And many of these devotionals, um, there are a few exceptions, but many of them right. are 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 awful in terms of the way use, they use scripture. They do not give the message of the text. They give some other message that mm-hmm. they find in the text. And then you have other devotionals like Jesus Calling, where it's not the text at all. It's just some woman who thinks she knows what Jesus is saying, and then she writes us wonderful things, and all these Christians are following it. Mm-hmm. That's not how to know God. You know God by reading what God says and having someone help you to understand it. Okay, mm-hmm. now I realize I just stepped on a bunch of toes there, but nevertheless, those are toes that I think need to be stepped on. Okay, um, so go back to the text. There are devotionals that are yeah. good. I think um, Daily Bread is a good one because mm-hmm. I have never seen them misuse a verse personally. Um, However, my utmost for his highest, this wonderful godly man constantly takes verses out of context. It's so painful to Mm. me because I know this man is such a good godly man, but Mm -hmm. he is, he, it's, it's maybe the right sermon, but it's the wrong text. And that is not Mm. a good way of instructing the body of Christ because then they're going to start doing the same thing grabbing verses out of their context and thinking they're reading God's word when they're not. It's the same words as God's word, but it's a different meaning than God intended. And when it's a different meaning, it is no longer God's word. Ooh, that's a whole different episode, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> but the question was, how do we protect our kids from the from the lies of the culture? And they have to be firmly or just prepare rooted. them. We, we have to be firmly rooted in the objective truth, not in their subjective sense of closeness to Christ, mm. which is what you expressed as a concern, essentially, when you talked about devotionals. And that's important, subjective closeness, but even our emotional sense of closeness to God has to be theologically informed mm-hmm. because there are all kinds of Mormons who feel close to God and Jehovah's Witnesses and all kinds of New Agers and all kinds well, of- Well, and our emotions else. change. That's right. Well, the emotions can't be a proper guide to truth. Mm-hmm. They that's change. That's the deal. Exactly. You're not always going to feel close to God. Right. That's right. <laughs> Not if you uh, walk with him long enough. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's like marriage, right? You know, yeah. you got a honeymoon and then you got real living, you know, and then it's up and down and up and down. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so the same thing with God. I, I'm with you, you know, 100% on that one, Amber. And I, and I hope I haven't been too harsh with some of your listeners because I've probably said some things that jar them, but I want them to think carefully about that. We are not... It is the word of God that's inspired, not the emotional things we're feeling when we're reading, not what Mm. we think God is telling us by reading between the lines. Mm. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and by the way, this is the last letter he wrote. He is about to be beheaded in Rome, and he's leaving the most important things behind. And he says, Timothy, study to show yourself approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. Now, what that means is there's a right way to handle the word and there's a wrong way and there's an inaccurate way and an accurate way. And if you're handling it inaccurately, since you have not attended to the text carefully, you should be ashamed. Mm. That's Paul. It's right there in first, uh, make that second Timothy chapter two. People can read it for themselves and see if I'm distorting it. I'm not. That's what he says. Go ahead and take a look. As we begin to close out here, I do want to just ask you, I think that I could literally talk to you for hours, but I, I'm going to, I'm not going to do that <laughs> mainly <laughs> because I got kids downstairs listeners. who have to eat dinner. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, and your poor listeners too. You should probably divide oh, no. this into two episodes. I don't Listen, know. they are so used to me. I mean, Rosaria Butterfield, I don't know if um, you know who Rosaria is, but anyway. Uh, yes, yeah, so I've had her on the, on the air and it was frustrating because I kept mispronouncing her name, oh, but yes. she's magnificent. 
She is. And she lives really close uh, to where I live here in the triangle. Uh And so, I mean, we just talked and talked and talked and I did split hers up into two because I was like, Oh my gosh, Rosaria, I could, Uh but so I, my listeners are pretty used to me, uh, keeping it long when I'm really interested. So, mm-hmm. but I do want to ask, you know, after all the years that you have spent teaching, you know, Christians, how to engage in this friendly conversation, um, about Christ, what are some of the most important things that you have learned? Well, that's a great question. And I, I'm, I'm aware of our limited time here. So one of it is one of the things that I just mentioned a few moments ago, and this is especially an important or earlier in our conversation, which wasn't a few moments ago, but uh, is especially important for us now in the context of our culture that we're facing. And that is that my Christian life has not been easy. Um, mm-hmm. The Christian life is not easy. All right. And for most Christians, it's going to get harder if they are going to be faithful to Christ. I want you to think about this. First Peter, which is a book I I spend quite a bit of time in lately, is written to suffering Christians. Mm. The book of Hebrews was written to suffering Christians. First Thessalonians, suffering Christians. Second Thessalonians, suffering Christians. Philippians, written to suffering Christians. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and 2 Timothy were written by Paul when he was in prison. Yeah. Okay. Uh, probably the, the the greatest selling book of all time, apart from the Bible, up until, you know, um, Harry Potter, I guess, <laughs> was uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Mm-hmm. That was written while he was in prison. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so the point I'm making here is this health, wealth, prosperity mentality that some people uh, claim is the is central to Christianity is false, mm-hmm. and it's obviously false in in light of those facts that I just recited to you. In First mm-hmm. uh, Peter chapter four, uh, or maybe it's chapter three, but I think it's four. Peter says, "Why are you so surprised at this fiery ordeal?" among you as if something strange were happening to you. This isn't strange. This is ordinary. And when you suffer for Christ, the spirit of grace and glory rests upon you. Now, one of the reasons I'm emphasizing this so much, Amber, is first of all, that has always been true. But Americans have had it easy Mm -hmm. because of the influence of uh, a Christian worldview in our culture. But that has rapidly, rapidly eroded. In one generation, it's almost disappeared. And we are moving towards totalitarianism. I've been writing about that all year long. People can go to str.org and sign up to get Solid Ground. In the upper right-hand corner, they can do that of the homepage. But read the Solid Grounds from this year. They're just, uh, so far, just just uh, four articles I've written. And uh, the, the fifth one is coming out September 1st. But they all make the same point. We are moving towards this. And I'm not a chicken little person, Amber. We are in dangerous straits. What Christians are going to find out that is if they are faithful to Christ, just as Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And this is happening now in our country. Many have dodged the bullet and many are dodging the bullet because they're not being faithful to Christ, to put it simply. They are going along with everybody else and all the ideas of culture that are politically incorrect. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. that are inconsistent with the politically incorrect views of Christianity, whether yeah. it's gender or sexuality or abortion or Jesus being the only way or, you know, pick your mm-hmm. pick your topic. But uh, and so they're folding. They're going along with their friends. Yeah. They're being more faithful to their friends than they are to Christ because they think more of what their friends talk about. You know, in, in, in Mark 15, you have Pilate trying to get Jesus off by offering him up as a freebie instead of Barabbas, and the people called for Barabbas. Uh, and so Mark 15, 15 says this, wishing to please the crowd. Let me say it again. Wishing to please the crowd. Pilate released Barabbas and had Jesus scourged and crucified. This is the number one thing that I I think by exhortation as an older brother in Christ, I can pass on to your listeners. Do not 
stand with Pilate. Wow. Thank you, Greg, so much. Um, I'm grateful for the work that you're doing. Thank you. Um, I'm obviously grateful for tactics, and I would encourage anyone to go and purchase it and don't read it once, read it twice. Take notes as Greg encourages you. He'll tell you to practice, come home and write in your journal and mm -hmm. you should, it helps. Um, and so it's str.org, correct? Yeah, absolutely, correct. Awesome. str.org. Well, thanks so much for being here today. I'm grateful for your time and um, your expertise. Well, Amber, I'm grateful for what you're doing for the people who listen to you. I, I genuinely am. And I hope you get a whole bunch more people added to your platform, to your tribe, and mm -hmm. that you continue being faithful. What I want to hear at the end of my life when I cross over is I want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's what I desire for you and every single follower of Jesus who listens to your podcast. Amen. Was that conversation helpful? I know it was for me. Tactics is a book I have underlined, highlighted, written margin notes in, and dog-eared. If this episode was helpful, visit graceenoughpodcast.com slash tactics for quotes, links, and other resources. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.